Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. Welcome to Come Follow Me Insights by Book of Mormon Central. Today, Helaman 1 through 6. This chapter, or this set of chapters, is quite frankly very difficult because you're going to see high and then low, and then high and then low. It feels like you're on a roller coaster or a Ferris wheel, just going around and around and around. Um, what we see in the Book of Mormon that uh, President Benson uh, emphasized a lot in his teaching is the famous pride cycle. Now, you've seen it, you've probably diagrammed it multiple times yourself. Um, let's, let's just get it on the board because that way it gives us a point of contact with this lesson. So at the top we have prosperity, and when individuals and cultures prosper, it has the tendency, if we're not careful, to lead to pride, being lifted up in the pride that uh, makes us feel like we're, we're somehow better than other people or that we don't need God anymore because we're so prosperous. Pride is the gateway sin, according to, to President Benson, so it always leads to greater sin. Sin always leads to some kind of destruction. Destruction will bring us down into sorrow and despair. If we let it, that sorrow will lead us to greater humility. If we let that humility work in us, then it will lead us to repent of our sins. Whenever we repent, the Lord forgives us and he blesses us. Those blessings mount and grow and multiply and it leads us to prosperity and there we have it, the pride cycle. And you'll notice everything on the pride cycle is the opposite of that which is directly across from it. Pride and humility, sin and repentance, blessings and destruction, prosperity and sorrow. This is basically the entire lesson, today and next week, actually. Uh, the, the book of Helaman is over and over. It, it, it's going to literally feel like you've been on a Ferris wheel this whole, this whole book long. President Benson took this one step further to say that the book was written for our day uh, and that as you watch the patterns unfold among the Nephites and the Lamanites, he said you will see events in our day unfolding leading up to the second coming just as these people are leading up to his first coming. So things really start to heat up in the, in the book of Helaman. You'll notice some general patterns. In the book of Alma, there are some pretty clearly defined borders between the Nephites and the Lamanites. It's pretty obvious to tell who your enemy is. You open up the book of Helaman 
and two things happen. It shifts from these well-defined borders, well-defined enemy, to you're not sure who, you, who, who your enemy is anymore. He could be standing right next to you and you didn't know it in, in the book of Helaman. So the two adjustments that the devil makes is, number one, he becomes more sneaky and more subtle than ever before in the Book of Mormon, but this is done internally among the Nephites through what we're going to uh, be talking about today with the secret combinations. The, this enemy that is among you, that they're not wearing a uniform, they're not on their side of a border, it's, you just, you don't know who they are. More sneaky and subtle internally, and he becomes more bold and brazen externally. So the Lamanites come in here in chapter uh, one, my good friend Rex Reeve pointed this out to me, and this is amazing. For the first time ever, the Lamanites, they don't come to the outer cities, they come in quickly while the Nephites are distracted internally with some problems with secret combinations, and they bring their army right into the capital city. First time in the history of the Book of Mormon where the first attack is they sneak their way in and boom, hit the capital city and take over the, that city, kill the chief judge, and then keep driving further to try to get to the land Bountiful, where they're finally defeated. This is the point. Um, as we get farther and, or further and further into time towards the second coming, we're going to see our world mirroring and, pat and following this same pattern. And the farther into time we get, the, the less we're looking beyond our borders to worry about fighting against evil, and the more we're trying to figure out where all of the struggles are, not just externally, but internally. And that's kind of where we're headed in, in this book of Helaman. Uh, let's pick it up now in the actual text. Go to chapter 1, verse 1. Now behold, it came to pass in the commencement of the fortieth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, there began to be a serious difficulty among the people of the Nephites. There have been a lot of periods of serious difficulty, but look what makes this different. Verse 2, behold, Pahoran had died and gone the way of all the earth, therefore there began to be a serious contention concerning who should have the judgment seat among the brethren who were the sons of Pahoran. That's interesting. Can you imagine what it might be like to live in a society where there's actually serious contention and fighting and negativity regarding who's going to be your next government leader? I wonder if Mormons saw our day. And by the way, chapter 2 is going to open up with the exact same thing. Serious contention, oh no, who's going to be our next leader, and it leads to this, this negativity and this real a deep divide among the people rather than a unifying thing. So in this first chapter, you get the three sons, Pahoran, Paonkai, and Pacumani, and they're all vying for this judgment seat, and the vote goes to Pahoran, which is fine. Pacumani says, I lost the vote, and he, he gets in line, not Paonkai. Paonkai gets angry, and he stirs up the people in verse 7, 
it's exceedingly wroth, and because of that, he's condemned unto death in verse 8. So, those who would follow him, they get one named Kishkumen, who goes and murders Pahoran while he's on the, the judgment seat. And it was done in secret, he was in disguise, and for the first time we introduce officially in the Book of Mormon secret combinations. Um, by the way, that's why we won't have any padlocks in heaven, right? Because secret combinations are bad. <laughs> Let me share a thought here. Back here in verse 3, these people who wanted power and authority in the Nephite civilization, they were the ones who did cause the people to contend. So it invites us to ask ourselves, are we actually seeking peace, love, understanding, or are we driving contention? Are we driving misunderstanding? And I think it's significant that these three guys were causing the people to contend. And if you go back to King Benjamin's speech, he says to the parents, don't let your children contend with one another. Well, what if actually the parents actually caused the children to contend with one another? I mean, that's even worse. And in some ways, that's what the government leaders were doing. And this is why it's so important in societies everywhere that people look first at the inner vessel and say, am I seeking to understand others? Am I seeking to be Christ-like? And am I seeking to avoid contention? Now, look, we don't just sit around passively and get walked all over, you know, if somebody's going to, um, you know, try, try to, you know, ruin our world. But the idea here is that it is possible to prosperously find ways to get people in power who will, who will live righteously and rule righteously. But when the leaders are driving the contention, it creates enormous problems in society because then people start choosing sides. And the last time we checked the scriptures, I don't think God ever had any sides except his side. I don't think he takes political sides. So this is important. And maybe also just point out something also interesting about uh, Kishkumen. The first person to introduce secret combinations in the Book of Mormon is in the Jaredite record, a guy named A. Kish. I think it's interesting that the first person to bring it into Nephite society was this guy named Kishkumen. Now, this is just my speculation. I just wonder, you know, if somehow Kishkumen may have been part of one of the Jaredite descendants, because even we have this guy named Coriantumr later, and it's, it may be possible that there were descendants of the Jaredites floating around who had access to these seer combinations that provided it. Of course, at the same time, Satan has a way of working with people and getting seer combinations into their hearts and minds. And let's also provide this idea, secret combinations is in contrast to sacred covenants. We've talked about this recently 
Secret Combinations is all about being focused on yourself. And we'll erase this in a little bit. Where Secret Covenants is about being focused outward on others. And if we look what's going on here, who are the people serving? Secret Combinations is all about serving yourself and to seek power at the expense of others. Whereas Sayer Covenants is about using your power to empower others that they can have lives of prosperity. So just a couple of things to consider that as you look at what we are offered in the gospel, we are taught to bind ourselves into sacred covenants to serve one another, to love God, love your neighbor. Sayer Combinations is hate God, hate your neighbor. So chapter 1 concludes with this entry of the Lamanite army that we had talked about before where they take over the capital city, they kill the chief judge, and then they go north, and then they finally get surrounded, and that war ends, leaving us with a lot of problems. Chapter 2, verse 1, it came to pass in the forty and second year of the reign of the judges, after Moronihah had established again peace between the Nephites and the Lamanites, behold, there was no one to fill the judgment seat. Therefore there began to be a contention again among the people concerning who should fill the judgment seat. And it came to pass that Helaman, who was the son of Helaman, was appointed to fill the judgment seat by the voice of the people. Now, the this group of Kishkumen, this group that we've been referring to as secret combinations, gets described in much greater detail in chapter 2. Look at verse 4. Uh, there was one Gadianton who was exceedingly expert in many words and also in his craft to carry on the secret work of murder and of robbery. Therefore, he became the leader of the band of Kishkumen. That's why we call them the Gadianton robbers for the rest of the Book of Mormon. And what are they robbing? It's not thievery. Robbery is all about uh, insurrection and overthrowing political order. But yeah, they're robbing people of their lives and livelihoods. So check this out. Verse 5, therefore he did flatter them and also Kishkumen that if they would place him in the judgment seat, he would grant unto those who belonged to his band that they should be placed in power and authority among the people. Therefore Kishkumen sought to destroy Helaman. Uh, we're told multiple times that no righteous person is ever taken from this life before their mission is complete or before their time. So it is with Helaman. His mission is not complete. So Kishkumen comes to, to do the same thing he had done to Pahoran before, but the servant of Helaman saw him, recognized him somehow, had had enough knowledge of what was going on, gave him a secret sign, he shared his desire, and at that point, uh, Mormon pauses here to give you a nutshell definition of what it means when we say secret combinations. Look at verse 8. This is the simplest nutshell definition I can, I can find for secret combinations. Notice what's involved. Number one, when the servant of, of uh, Helaman had known all the of the heart of Kishkumen and how that it was his object to murder, and it was also the object of all those who belonged to this band to murder 
and to rob and to uh, gain power. And this was all done in secret, not out in the open. So Taylor's talking about sacred covenants versus secret combinations. This is how Satan does his work, in the dark, in the corners, under the cloak and the guise of, of uh, disguise, secretly going about to murder, to kill other people, to rob in order for him to get gain, to gain power and to gain things. Notice, and this was their secret plan and their combination. That's exactly what Satan did in heaven in the premortal uh, war, and he hasn't changed his strategy in all these years, in all the interim. He's still, still trying to secretly destroy each of us to steal from – to rob from us, rob life, rob agency, rob everything from us in order for him to gain power over us. Secret combinations are alive and well in, in many levels and in many layers today. And uh, you then watch he the, the servant kills Kishkumen, and then Gadianton finds out that – or is scared that he hasn't come back in time, so they flee before we can destroy that band. And look at verse 13. Behold, in the end of this book ye shall see that this Gadianton did prove the overthrow, yea, almost the entire destruction of the people of Nephi. One – this one thing is going to be really, really critical in uh, causing problems among the Nephites. Now we come into chapter 3. Or in the forty and third year, there was no contention among the people of Nephi. So we've made our way through the pride cycle, there's no contention, there's, there's a bit of prospering going on here. Uh-oh, save it were a little pride which was in the church, which did cause some little dissensions among the people which affairs were settled in the ending of the forty and third year. So we quickly made it through that one. Then verse 2, there was no contention among the people in the forty and fourth, in the forty and fifth, verse 3, forty and sixth, there was much contention and many dissensions in the which there were an exceedingly great many who departed out of the land of Zarahemla and went forth unto the land northward to inherit the land. You'll notice there's so much contention that this large group of people leaves. He doesn't even number them in this case. They just leave and they go northward. Where did they go? Verse 4, they traveled to an exceedingly great distance insomuch that they came to large bodies of water and many rivers. So they just leave. They're up in the northward, they're doing their own thing, but our story stays down south in the land of Zarahemla and the land of Nephi, in the land southward. Look at verse 14. By the way, let me just say this. Uh, Verse 14, there are 18 ands in this verse. I'll just say it. Verse 14 is a terrible English sentence. It's one sentence. This whole verse, it's long. Terrible English. If you were to turn this kind of writing in in college, in a, in a writing class, you would flunk that English writing class. But if you look closely at it, it's beautiful 
uh, in its ancient language aspects, especially a language like Egyptian, Reformed Egyptian, where they don't use any punctuation, where they use words instead of things like commas and, and periods and exclamation marks. Look at verse 14. But behold, a hundredth part of the proceedings of this people, yea, the account of the Lamanites and of the Nephites and their wars and contentions and dissensions and their preaching and their prophecies and their shipping and their building of ships and their building of temples and of synagogues and their sanctuaries and their righteousness and their wickedness and their murders and their robbings and their plunderings and all manner of abominations and whoredoms cannot be contained in this work. Breathe. <sighs> Terrible English. Beautiful Egyptian and Hebraisms in here in that this is not a, a record that was created by a farm boy in the 1820s. This is an ancient record that was translated by the gift and power of God into English, and all of the punctuation marks in this book that you can see, some people have made fun of them, some people have made fun of the grammar in the Book of Mormon who would seek to, to uh, tear down people's belief or faith in the book, uh, it's interesting, when anybody makes any kind of a judgment call regarding the punctuation, keep in mind, there was no punctuation on the plates. There was no punctuation on the original manuscript. It's John Gilbert, the, the printer's typesetter, who is the one who goes through the printer's manuscript and adds all the punctuation. And by the way, he really liked the semicolon. Uh, so don't make any judgment calls or any doctrinal decisions based on the placement of a punctuation mark in the Book of Mormon because it's not prophetic. And I can just share a personal testimony about this. I've spent many years studying ancient Hebrew and many other ancient languages uh, from the ancient Middle East and elsewhere, and the more I study those ancient languages, the more the English translation of the Book of Mormon makes sense in an ancient context, and exactly what Tyler's pointing out this reads super well to me from an he ancient Hebrew, ancient Egyptian uh, uh, perspective, and I just think it's phenomenal. Joseph Smith is this uneducated farm boy. This is not his words. These are the words of God that he delivered to Joseph Smith to deliver to us. The Book of Mormon is indeed an authentic, ancient witness of Jesus Christ. We know it is, and these are just a little icing on the cake to kind of demonstrate, yep, you can take this seriously. Some of you may be thinking, oh, so I need to look for more of these Hebraisms and, and these elements of, of the Reformed Egyptian in the text in order to really have a testimony. That's not our point. A testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his gospel, of his prophets, of his scriptures, is born to our soul by the gift and power of God, the gift of the Holy Ghost who, who helps, through the power of the Holy Ghost, helps us know in our heart to feel truth, to, to sense it. Once you have your testimony in place in your heart, then, and only then, when you get these kinds of head testimony things that we've been talking about here, then it becomes validation, verification. It becomes using our, our study and also our faith to combine to help us recognize truth and to come unto Christ. 
So now we get into the, the rest of this chapter, watching this pride cycle continue to roll. It just continues to circle. So in chapter 3, verse 23, you get the beginning of the 49th year, there was continual peace. All save it were the secret combinations which Gideon and the robber had established in the more settled parts of the land. So you've got this little canker that's just growing in the society. Look at verse 24. Came to pass that in the same year there was exceedingly great prosperity in the church. So thousands joined the church, so now we're up here, and now we're having incredible success, and the prosperity was so big that everybody was just amazed. Verse 26, tens of thousands of souls were baptized and united themselves to the church of God. And now Mormon pauses and throws in three thus we see kinds of statements in rapid succession. Thus we see that the Lord is merciful unto all who will, in the sincerity of their hearts, call upon his holy name. When we're humble and we repent, we call upon God, we turn to God, call upon his name, he's merciful, and we see it. Verse 28, yea, thus we see that the gate of heaven is open unto all, even to those who will believe on the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. You know, there, there are a lot of ways to depict the gates of heaven. Some would depict them as, you know, swinging gates, some as gates of heaven. Uh, in my mind, do you know what the gates of heaven look like? They look like the outstretched and open arms of the Almighty Son of God named Jesus Christ. That, to me, is the gates of heaven. They're open. His arms are opened wide. They're outstretched. They're inviting you. He is our gate. He is the door. He is the path, the way into heaven. It all comes through him and only him. Look at verse 29. Yea, we see that whosoever will may lay hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across that everlasting gulf of misery which is prepared to engulf the wicked. Now, you think, wonderful, it's great. Well, you just keep reading and it just keeps cycling. Look at verse 33. It came to pass in the fifty and first year of the reign of the judges there was peace also, save it were the pride which began to enter into the church. Then Mormon pauses and he says, wait a minute, pride didn't really enter into the church because pride can't enter into the church. Notice the correction that he makes. Not into the church of God, but into the hearts of the people who professed to belong to the church of God. So pride doesn't enter into the church of God itself, it enters into the people who profess to belong to the church. It's a problem with people, not the, not the organization, and they're lifted up in this pride. Nevertheless, verse 35, they did fast and pray oft and did wax stronger and stronger in their humility and firmer and firmer in their faith under the filling of their souls with joy and consolation. So while some are headed in a bad direction, others are noticing that and it's causing them. This doesn't have to be collective. You don't have to be a victim of the society or your culture or your environment. Individuals can choose to do uh, their own version of this pride cycle.
let me show you what I mean. What you're noticing right here, in a, in a roundabout sort of a way, no pun intended, roundabout, <clears throat> this is what you might call a terrestrial lifestyle. A terrestrial person is going to go th they're, they're never really good and they're never really bad, they're, they're good, honorable people who get blinded by the craftiness of men and maybe learn from that and fix things, and this is a terrestrial cycle where you've got good and bad all mixed in together and it keeps, keeps rotating through. Later on in the Book of Mormon, in, in the last part of 4th Nephi and then into that smaller book called the Book of Mormon, you're going to see something shift because the people are going to experience destruction and sorrow, and instead of that sorrow leading them to humility, it's actually going to lead them to greater pride, which leads them to deeper sin, further destruction, and worse sorrow, which leads them to more pride. What you see in Mormon chapters 1 through 6 is a spiral downward. They never come over into here. There was one time where he's like, oh good, they're, they're getting humble and they're going to repent. Oh, never mind, they're not humble. They're not sorrowing and turning to God, they're sorrowing because they can't be happy in their wickedness. And they got worse and worse and worse and worse until they come down. This is the telestial cycle or slide. Brothers and sisters, we're not a victim to any of this. You, you don't have to wait for this to happen to you. What's the trick? The trick is right here. Instead of getting into prosperous times and having that somehow puff us up and make us feel like, oh, well, I'm smarter than her and I'm richer than him and I have more of whatever it is than them, so I must be better than them. Instead of getting puffed up in pride, what happens if a person or a family or a culture says, dear God on high, I didn't deserve this level of prosperity. Thanks. I'm very grateful. What do I need to do to use this prosperity to keep sacred covenants and to turn outward and lift and bless and help other people around me? help the poor become richer? How can I become more like Jesus? How can I become an instrument in thy hands? If a people, if a family, if a ward, a stake, if we as a collective church, if we as, as a nation, as, as human beings on the planet all did that, it would lead us to repent at a more refined level God would bless us with an outpouring of more things than we would have room to receive, and our prospering would get astronomically high, and it would become this spiral staircase. This is the celestial cycle. We don't have to be a victim of the pride cycle, and we definitely don't have to fall into the telestial slide. We can choose to walk the high road, and the trick is what do you do when you're prospering? What do you do when you're when things are going well, as well as what do you do when you're struggling? 
Now, the rest of this, this concept from chapter 3 leading into 4 and culminating with 5. Watch this. So you're in chapter 3, verse 37. It came to pass in the thirty and third year of the reign of the judges, Helaman died, and then his eldest son Nephi began to reign in his stead. And it came to pass that he did fill the judgment seat with justice and equity, and he did keep the commandments of God and did walk in the ways of his father. You'll notice he gets the judgment seat. He's going to be prospering now. He's got power. He's got authority. It would be very easy for him to pat himself on the back and say, I'm better than everybody else, and fall into pride and sin and destruction, but he doesn't. He walks in the commandments of God. He's showing us a pattern of what it means or what it looks like to, to uh, follow the celestial cycle rather than the pride cycle. And let's just remind everybody, these two phrases here, keeping the commandments of God is also a covenantal phrase. The commandments are how we show our love and loyalty to God in a covenantal relationship, and a way of expressing that also is walking the ways of his Father who is righteous. And when you walk, you're like walking on the covenant path. So when we see these phrases, we see them all over scriptures, you can also see them as covenantal phrases to remind us when we are in sacred covenantal bonds and relationship with God, we can express it as keeping the commandments and walking the ways of God or walking the ways of righteous parents. Good. So here you are in chapter 4. Came to pass that in the fifty and fourth year there were many dissensions in the church, and there was also a contention among the people, insomuch that there was much bloodshed. So the society, the culture, there's this unrest and this, this difficulty and this contention that gets to the point where now there's bloodshed going on. Verse 2, and the rebellious part were slain and driven out of the land, and they did go unto the king of the Lamanites. So they stir up the Lamanites, and it's, it's interesting to me that Mormons spend so little uh, column space on this, but for the first time in the Book of Mormon you get a wide-scale defeat, like wide-scale defeat among the Nephites, and Mormon doesn't give you much, much uh, detail here. All he tells you is that in verse 5, in the fifty and seventh year they did come down against the Nephites to battle, they did commence the work of death, and in that fifty and eighth year they succeeded in obtaining possession of the land of Zarahemla, yea, all of the lands, even unto the land which was near the land bountiful. So they have taken over all of these cities in the land of Zarahemla all the way up to bountiful. That's pretty drastic. Things are terrible. Now, we talked just a moment ago about the critical point being what do you do when you're prospering? That's a turning point, that's a decision point that uh, helps us stay on the covenant path, on a celestial path, by becoming more humble. Well, the other extreme is also an, an incredibly important deciding factor in the kind of people we're going to be. It's what do you do when everything's going terribly wrong? I love uh, C.S. Lewis's writings, and one of one of my favorites of his books is the Screw Tape Letters. Really quickly, overview: Screw Tape is a, a powerful devil. He's pretty high up in the hierarchy of of devils. Actually, in hell, I guess it would be he was pretty low down in the lower archy of devils. <laughs> I make sure I get that correct. 
Uh, he has a nephew named Wormwood who has a patient, uh, a fellow in England during World War II who he's trying to tempt, trying to destroy his soul. Wormwood is, is being trained by Screwtape, hence the name of the book, The Screwtape Letters. So Uncle Screwtape is writing these letters to his nephew to teach him about human beings. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it was the hardest book he ever wrote because he said he had to think diabolically and it was hard work. Ironically, when he finished the book, he dedicated it to his good friend who had helped bring him to uh, Christianity, J.R.R. Tolkien, who, by the way, was not flattered and did not appreciate a book about devils being dedicated to him, but that's a different story for a different day. <laughs> At one point in the Screwtape letters, uh, Screwtape writes one particular epistle to Wormwood because Wormwood is excited. He thinks, I've got my guy. He's in the depths of despair and he's crying out and God's not answering him. And in this particular letter, Screwtape introduces us to this idea of undulation. He teaches Wormwood and us about our own human condition. He said, human beings are dual-natured, spirit and flesh. And he said, everything humans experience goes through cycles. They have ups and they have downs. It's the law of undulation in all aspects of our life. We experience highs and lows. Now here's the point. Brothers and sisters, anyone, anyone can be good on a mountain peak of, of energy and spirituality and light and truth and prosperity. This is a critical point to not choose to become prideful that we talked about before, but to choose to become humble. The other point is what happens here and here. What are the decisions we make? It's here where Screwtape tells Wormwood, oh, be careful, because our cause is never more in peril or never more in danger than when a human being finds themselves in a trough of life, they cry out to the wide universe around them, to God, for help. He doesn't respond. They look everywhere and they can't find any trace of him. He's He's not talking to them. He's not filling them with light and comfort and truth and relationships at that time. And he says, and still they choose to obey him. That's when the greatest damage is done to the work of the devils. I think that's extremely insightful because you see this over and over in the scriptures. And he goes on in that letter to say, God uses this technique over and over with his favorites. People who he's trying to shape the most, he lets them go through deep, dark troughs that last way longer than they think they should, but they continue to obey, and that's where the greatest character development and growth comes in life. That's what we see in the Book of Mormon with Nephi and Lehi in in these chapters coming up, you've got everything going wrong. You've got – it seems like the whole world is falling apart on us. Look at verse chapter 4, verse 11. 
Now this great loss of the Nephites and the great slaughter which was among them would not have happened had it not been for their wickedness and their abomination which was among them, yea, and it was among those who were who also professed to belong to the church of God. And it was because of the pride of their hearts, because of their exceeding riches, because of their oppression to the poor, withholding their food from the hungry, withholding their clothing from the naked, and smiting their humble brethren upon the cheek, making a mock of that which was sacred, denying the spirit of prophecy and of revelation, murdering, plundering, lying, stealing, committing adultery, rising up in great contentions and deserting away into the land of Nephi among the Lamanites. All these things are happening, so what do you do? Well, instead of giving up and turning away from God and saying, well, I'm not even going to try anymore, Nephi and Lehi in chapter 5, they say, let's be obedient, let's be diligent, let's be faithful, and we're going to move forward. Chapter 5 is this beautiful uh, example for us today of what to do when you find yourself in a trough of life. They remembered. Since they can't see the light and the truth, so to speak, in, in the world around them, they cast their mind back to some things, and what does their mind go back to? Things that they learned at home with uh, beautiful teachings from parents. Look at, uh, look at chapter 5 and you'll notice a word that gets repeated 15 times in 10 verses, starting in verse 5. Remember, remember. Yeah, we've talked about this in past lessons that remember means to put members back together. It's putting memories back together. And in a covenantal context, it's remembering all the great deeds that God has done for you, all his mercy, his acts of grace. And if we connect it to Moroni's grand promise in Moroni chapter 10, he tells us, remember all the mercy that God has provided to humanity throughout all of human history. And after you've done that, then ask him if this is not true. So when we remember all that God has done for us, and all of us have experienced tremendous moments of God's outpouring, you may not feel it right now, but if you remember, you will be able to find times in your memory when God blessed your life, when you knew he was real. And when you remember those things, it brings it back to the present and it is encouraging to us to be faithful to God, and it motivates our actions to stay true and faithful on the covenant path. And so what it does is like, we had these incredible moments, we might be down here in the trough, we gotta remember that this was real, and we can have it again through the power of God. And let me just take one more minute to talk about the names of these men. Actually, focus primarily just on Nephi, so two uh, LDS scholars, uh, John Gee and Matt Bowen, have done some research in Egyptian and discovered that the word Nephi seems to be an ancient Egyptian name for a man that comes from the word that means good, lovely, beautiful, or desirable. And what I want you to look at is if you think back into 1 Nephi, when he, beginning of the Book of Mormon, he says, I, Nephi, having been born of Nephi parents, goodly parents, 
when Nephi talks about the tree of life, he talks about how beautiful the tree was and how desirable the fruit was. In an Egyptian context, he would have been using his own name to talk about the love of God. And if you look here, in the, if we could put this back into the original Egyptian, what we'd be hearing is that Helaman is saying to his sons, I want you to be good, and when you remember your name, you'll remember the good they did, and that you will desire to also do good. Now, I'm going to put that in contrast to the counterexample to Nephi, and that name is Laman. And this proposal recently was suggested by, again, Matt Bowen, an incredible uh, Book of Mormon scholar in the religion department at BYU-Hawaii. He proposed this word, layman, may come from two words in Hebrew, la, amen. Now, we say this word all the time after every prayer and talk. Amen is a Hebrew word that means belief or truth. La in Semitic languages means no or not. So if this proposal is correct, Laman's name actually is a symbol of his life, not believing. And we will see that Nephi and Lehi, sons of Helaman, go among those who do not believe and teach them. And this chapter is beautiful because it tells us we need to remember the good, remember the love of God and his beauty, and that we should desire these things and not fall into that pride cycle of not believing. When we're down here, we might choose to not believe the beautiful moments of salvation we've experienced in our lives. We shouldn't be a layman. We shouldn't be a non-believer. We should choose, even in the moments of difficulty, to choose to remember the good, the lovely, the beautiful, the desirable. These low points of life, they don't just happen to random people. They happen to everyone. Everyone goes through undulations of life. When upon life, life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings. Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. That's, that's the, uh, one of the, the principles that we can apply from this to remember God's goodness, remember his mercy. So rather than spending tons of time on all of these, these remember passages starting in verse 5, let's just pick up two of the verses. Go to verse 9. O remember, remember, my sons, the words which King Benjamin spake unto his people, yea, remember that there is no other way nor means whereby man can be saved only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ who shall come. Yea, remember that he cometh to redeem the world. And I might just throw in here, if you want to talk law of undulation, undulation finds its infinite fulfillment in the life and especially in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You want to talk about a trough of life with infinite proportions, then you talk about death and hell being descended into by Jesus himself and being faithful throughout that process, even though he cried out in Gethsemane for the cup to pass from him, it didn't pass from him. He tread the winepress alone. I love the fact, by the way, that Elder Holland said 
that he gave it as his opinion that never was the Father closer to the Son than at those moments through that atoning sacrifice, especially culminating on the cross. Now go to verse 12. Now, my sons, remember, remember. Now notice three names or titles of Jesus here. That it is upon the rock of our Redeemer who is Christ, the Son of God. The one who's going to redeem is the, the Christ, the Anointed One, is also the Son of God. It's upon him that you must build your foundation. It's not a foundation built upon scriptures. It's not a foundation built upon a church or a government or a club or an organization or a cause in this world or the prophet himself. The foundation is rooted in Christ, Christ the Lord. That's it, the Son of God. That when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, notice you could circle the word when. He didn't say that if the devil shall send forth his mighty winds. It's when. It's, it's going to happen. We're going to face opposition. And notice it's not when you're going to face the devil's gentle breezes. It's when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and mighty storm shall beat upon you it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe. Why? Because of the rock upon which you are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if, there's your if, if men build, they cannot fall. It's not they're less likely to fall or they're probably going to survive. It's they cannot fall. I build my life on the rock of our Redeemer, and then however many of these troughs come along, I can't fall. I won't be dragged down to the gulf of misery and endless woe because of that rock upon which I'm built. And there's an interesting thing about storms, especially violent storms, like the ones that uh, Helaman is describing to his two boys here. Violent storms don't last forever. They come, they, they hit with a vengeance and a fury, but then they pass, and it came to pass. They don't, they don't keep blowing forever. When's the best time to build your foundation upon the Rock of the Redeemer? I think if President – or if Elder Uchtdorf were here, he would say, when's the best time to plant a tree? Twenty years ago. Second best time? Today. Best time to build a foundation? Twenty years ago. Second best time? Today. I love verse 12 because it roots us in the most important element that we keep coming back to over and over, and we're never going to tire of coming back to him over and over again. The Lord Jesus Christ is our only solution. He's our only answer. He's our only hope. In all of these struggles and the undulations, whether we're on a mountain peak, in a trough, or somewhere in between, Jesus is the only solution that we have. Now, at this point, Nephi and Lehi, in the midst of a very, very wicked society, they say, we're not going to try to push the, the Lamanites out because the Lamanites have taken over the land of Zarahemla, so instead they go and start teaching the gospel. And in the process, you'll notice verse 19, 8,000 of the Lamanites were convinced of the error of their ways and of their wickedness, and they 
get baptized. Then they go on a mission down to serve in the land of Nephi among the Lamanites, and they get thrown in prison. Chapter 5 is sweet because these men come into the prison to kill them, and you get this beautiful voice in verse 28, this, uh, they were overshadowed with a cloud of darkness and an awful solemn fear came upon them, and it came to pass that there came a voice as if it were above the cloud of darkness saying, Repent ye, repent ye, and seek no more to destroy my servants whom I have sent unto you to declare good tidings. So these men have this incredible experience. They hear the voice three times, you turn the page over, you get the wonderful story with Aminadab in 39, and the Lamanites there turning to him in verse 40 saying, What shall we do? What do we do? And his response, verse 41, I hope you can hear Aminadab's voice echoing through the corridor of time into your own home. In verse 41, you must repent and cry unto the voice, yea, until ye shall have faith in Christ, who was taught unto you by Alma and Amulek and Zeezrom. So they did that, the cloud passes, they're circled by fire, and then they hear a voice again. Look at the difference in verse 47. Peace, peace be unto you because of your faith in my well-beloved who was from the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, this is the turning point that Taylor was talking about, the, the crossover point where all of a sudden the Lamanites actually become more uh, righteous, more goodly, way more believing than, than the Nephites as a whole. This is the shift, this is the turning point where Nephi and Lehi's mission and experience and this group of Lamanites who were preserved, they go around and start teaching and it becomes incredible. You go to chapter 6, and now you have Lamanites preaching to wicked Nephites, and they're, you're going to watch just for fun. You could take our pride cycle and you could go through chapter 6 and just identify as you go through the verses how many times they go through the pride cycle in, in one chapter. Uh, you'll notice in 34, 35, and 36, Mormon as he's worked through elements of this pride cycle and secret combinations, he throws in three more thus we sees. Verse 34, thus we see that the Nephites did begin to dwindle in unbelief and grow in wickedness and abominations, while the Lamanites began to grow exceedingly in the knowledge of their God. Yea, they did begin to keep his statutes and commandments and to walk in truth and uprightness before him. Point being, you don't have to wait for people around you to choose the celestial cycle. You, today, this moment, can choose to become more humble, turn to God and say, not my will but thine be done. What do you need me to do? And some of you watching today are on a mountain peak of revelation and prosperity and peace. Some of you watching today have been in a trough of life way longer than you thought you were capable of, of enduring in, fa in faith and others of you are somewhere in between, going in on, on this uh, path of life. The point being, wherever you are, humility, repentance, faith in Christ, turning to God, that's always the answer that's going to lead to greater blessings. And it's not a matter of pushing buttons, it's a matter of pushing yourself. 
and causing yourself to turn to God and swallow up your will in his will. Look at verse 35. Thus we see that the Spirit of the Lord began to withdraw from the Nephites because of the wickedness and the hardness of their hearts, and thus we see that the Lord began to pour out his Spirit upon the Lamanites because of their easiness and willingness to believe in his words. This isn't rocket science. I can do this better today than I've ever done it before, and you can do this better today. We can turn to God in humility. President Ezra Taft Benson said, God will have a humble people. Either we can choose to be humble or we can wait for God to humble us. I much prefer the, the former option. In closing, we know that life is hard. We know that uh, the Book of Mormon was written for our day. Mormons saw some things that were happening in our, in our society, in our culture, in our time today, and he included things in the Book of Mormon. As we get closer and closer to that day when the Lord will return, we're getting closer and closer in the Book of Mormon to the day when Christ will manifest himself among the Nephites, and it shouldn't surprise us to live in a world with wheat and, wheat and tares that those wheat and tares are growing together simultaneously, that it's not just a dispensation of the fullness of times for righteousness, it's a dispensation of the fullness of times for wickedness, and it's growing side by side, and we shouldn't be shocked when we see wickedness and righteousness both increasing. Let's choose the celestial, uh, celestial staircase that leads us constantly closer to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We know he lives and we know he loves us. Even though you don't always hear his voice or see his hand, he's there and you're never forsaken. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.